Welcome along to 20 Minute Topic. It's Marcus Stead with Greg Lance Watkins, as usual. In light of Friday's terror attack in London, uh, we've decided not to play our usual upbeat theme tune based on the seriousness of that attack and of the discussion that's about to follow. Greg, we're taking a slightly different tone this week in light of the horrendous attack on London Bridge on Friday. Uh, First of all, we should extend our condolences to the families of the two people who have been bereaved. We should also pay tribute to the efforts of the emergency services and those who were on the scene. We've seen plenty of footage on social media in particular of uh, extraordinary scenes of bravery. But this inevitably has an impact on the election campaign. And we're looking at what we know more than 24 hours later now. The London Bridge attacker, his name was Usman Khan, who was previously part of a group that plotted to bomb the city's stock exchange. He was out on licence from prison. Now, the blame game has already begun between the Conservative and Labour parties as to who was responsible. There's been, um, some people are saying Ken Clark was responsible when he was Justice, Sec- Justice Minister. Uh, some were saying Lord Leverson was. Uh, there's, the blame game is well and truly underway. It's a difficult thing, but how do you believe the main party leaders should react to this under the circumstances? I think, firstly, apart from reiterating uh, your condolences to those who were harmed, is to point out that there are nutters in any society and uh, the Muslims are not without their share, the Irish are not without their share and various other groups in Britain aren't without their share. So I do not see this as one group versus another. It's nutters versus the rest. Uh, But to go back to where should the particular party leaders be positioning themselves, Uh, anybody of any stature would be positioning themselves in, this is a political mere culpa, because the party, nobody can say that it was um, Levison, nobody can say that it was Clark, Uh, Nobody can claim that it was anybody in particular, uh, because unless you had openly criticised the policy as it came along, you are culpable in that you failed to criticise it. Now, the only criticism I've seen of any of these policies from anyone has been Jeremy Corbyn, and I congratulate him for his criticism. Uh, in that he has been criticising the police shoot to kill. He's been criticising the fact that we are vilifying uh, murderers. Uh, He has criticised the fact that uh, we're punishing people without finding out why they're doing things. And I congratulate him for exposing himself as a complete nutter in his own right. So we're in a situation then where I've got mixed thoughts on this because on the one hand, we need to be blunt about this. The Muslim population of Britain has trebled since 1990, not that many years ago, less than 30 years ago. And I was listening to Najid Nawaz's programme on LBC earlier today, and he repeated two statistics he's used before. One of them was that after the Charlie Hebdo attacks in France, a survey was done And that survey revealed that one in four Muslims living in Britain was sympathetic to the Charlie Hebdo attackers. And the second statistic 
was, and this is something Trevor Phillips mentioned in that uh, excellent Channel 4 documentary he made a few years ago, that there was a survey done that revealed that 52% of Muslims living in Britain believe that homosexuality should be a criminal offence. Now, you might argue that, okay, one in four, that means that three out of four are not sympathetic to Charlie Hebdo, but that's still many hundreds of thousands of people living in Britain are to a certain extent sympathetic to terrorists. And that, I think, is dangerous. I think it's exceedingly dangerous, but I also question the statistic. One in four, when questioned, said that they uh, were sympathetic to it. I think if I was a very ordinary little Muslim family man uh, with wife and two, maybe even two wives um, and um, several children, I too would put forward that I was sympathetic to the Muslim cause as a Muslim purely and simply for the protection of my wife and my children because you're living cheek by jowl with the people you know damn well are extremists. If they do not believe that you are at very least impartial but preferably on their side, they will. Uh, vilify your children, uh, cause your wife problems, and castigate you. Many Muslims work within the Muslim community, and they will find it that much harder to find jobs. It's already not easy for them because of the actions of the terrorists. But if they do not, if they stand out from the crowd and vilify the terrorists, they are far more at risk than you and I. Now that is true, and I take on board everything you've just said, but therefore, what is the solution? Because this is, this is how I see it. I live among the oldest Muslim community in Britain. I live among it. And the Muslim community here that's well established, over 100 years old, they are very well integrated. They're part of the community. You do see Muslims and non-Muslims mixing easily. Um, and I've never heard a hint of trouble in the 10 years I've lived in this area. But there is another side to it. And in many towns and cities in this country, we have a sort of unofficial apartheid. You may see Muslims in city centres and on public transport, but there's not much in way of integration. There's not an official apartheid, there's an unofficial apartheid. What is the solution to this? Because you can't force people to do things they don't want to do. You can't force a Muslim who chooses not to drink alcohol to come and join you in the pub for a pint. What is the answer to this? Well, you can force them to not do things that you don't want him to do. And you can do this by presenting the harsh reality. And let's start right at the simple end of it. We have standards in this country for animals and not mistreating animals. So let's start with halal meat and halal slaughter. They're in Britain. They came to Britain by choice. They left their largely Muslim homelands of origin, whether one, two or three generations ago. They left it, why? Because they wanted a better life. Well, part of that better life presents in our attitude to animals. 
And I'm afraid this also, in my opinion, applies to kosher slaughter. So start right at the beginning and let people realize that whether they like it or not, they or their immediate ancestors chose to live in these United Kingdoms under the laws of these United Kingdoms. And if they are not prepared to acquiesce to that, then sorry, those we can, we will withdraw their right to live in this country. Because if they are not prepared to obey the simplest of our laws, then I regret to say they do not accept our democracy and therefore our democracy does not have to accept them. I agree with what you're saying, but I should also add to that a little caveat in that there is nothing in the Quran that says that the animal can't be stunned before slaughter takes place. I agree with you entirely. Yes, exactly. And there's also, if we're talking about what's not in the Quran, there's actually very little in the Quran that tells women how to dress beyond a very basic requirement for modesty, but we'll save that for another time. It also says in the Quran, respect the country in which you live. Hmm. It does indeed. And respect its customs and laws. Hmm. So let's see this respect start right out with the simple everyday matters of halal and kosher. Indeed, indeed. But going back to the subject of terrorism then, we're in quite a complicated situation because take the Nice attacker, for example. He was not known to the local Muslim community. He never went anywhere near a mosque. He was radicalised by watching things on the internet. Now, when I was a kid growing up from about like the, the late 80s throughout the 1990s, on television, there was always a rule, the 9pm watershed, you can't have any swearing before 9pm. And even after 9pm, there were still rules about nudity and extremism and so forth. Now, the internet is the Wild West. There are no restrictions. Pornography, violence extremism, extreme political opinions, pro-terrorist opinions. People can access all this stuff. There's no way of protecting the vulnerable. There's not really any way of protecting children. Okay, there are filters that parents can put on the internet in their homes, but children tend to know their way around these things, in my experience. It's a very tricky one, this, because, again, going back, this niece attacker had nothing to do with the local Muslim community. It was all sat in his living room or in his bedroom looking at it on a screen. How on earth... Do we even begin to deal with that sort of radicalization? We start by saying, and I say here, start with the simple things first and then slowly tighten it up to the standards that we believe as a society are right for our society. So let's start with a very strict imposition of the nine o'clock watershed and any any station that breaches that in any willful way yes sometimes there will be slips but in any willful way any country any station sorry that breaches that their first offense means suspension of that station from the airwaves for seven days let's start actually enforcing our simple laws rather than getting carried away with making our complex law. It at least starts pointing out to people that we actually believe in a rule of law. You cannot suddenly cut this in halfway along the path 
because then it starts to look as if you are singling out a given group. What we're actually singling out is all who break the law. So that's our starting point then. But on the subject of the internet, which you would struggle to regulate, how do we protect children first and foremost, vulnerable adults who could be easily manipulated? And is there is there a way there should be, I don't know, a license for you, you to even have access to the internet? What's the solution in the online world? Because it's all very well you talking about TV, and I'm glad you did. But for example, even the things like Netflix, where you effectively choose your own schedule. Um, but again, at least Netflix has that bit of regulation insofar as that certain content would be deemed so totally unsuitable is not on there. Whereas on, on the wider internet, there it is for anyone to access. How do we even begin to get the grips with that? Because the evidence strongly suggests, I used the example of Nice, but there are others, those who are carrying out terrorist attacks are radicalised on the internet rather than in the mosque. I agree with you, uh, but... I reiterate, you must start because any journey commences with the first step. And when you have television with openly proclaimed entertainment programs where people are judging the caliber of individuals who are naked as to the shape of their penis and the design of their vagina on mainstream television, I'm... <laughs> I don't think you are even laying down the beginnings of the foundations for dealing with the internet. The internet could be easily dealt with if governments had the will so to do. Let us take a very simple answer. In order to be able to use the internet, just an example, I'm sure it's got holes in it, but I'm doing this off the top of my head. Let's have a USB stick, which you by law have to purchase. Uh, it can be 10p, it doesn't matter. And which must be purchased with proof of identity. It must be purchased with not just identity, but location, i.e. so that they can find that individual. And they must have proven who they are and where they live, and they get their internet stick. No computer permitted for sale in Britain, no similar body can function without that stick in the slot. It becomes a crime to lose your stick or permit someone else to use it that is punishable, let us say, by a mandatory £50 fine if you fail to report it within 24 hours. That would mean that anything on the internet can be identified to source. That means that anybody breaking the law on the internet can be prosecuted and identified. There are ways in computers of making it impossible to function your computer without your stick. It's a very complicated thing to actually resolve this problem, but you're at the very beginnings of it. And in many ways, we're dealing with a problem after the horse, horse has bolted because these are really issues that governments should have been getting to grips with more than 20 years ago when the internet was becoming commonplace in households. So I think really this is the root cause of the problem. You know, it's, it's no good as far as I'm concerned putting plainclothes police officers in mosques and things like that because you probably won't hear anything of relevance but if people are being radicalized online it's a far harder thing to control until it's far too late as we are seeing but to get uh, to, to finish off then 
the general election campaign is continuing. We're, what, less than two weeks away from the election day now. And the polls are showing a continuation of what we discussed last week and that the minor parties are losing percentage points and the beneficiaries of that are the Conservative and the Labour parties. And we are seeing now uh, there's a consistent pattern that suggests we're heading towards a Conservative majority of about 40, though I stick by my prediction I made all along that I think it'll be nearer 80. But Brexit Party, Lib Dems, slightly different situation in Scotland with the SNP, but the smaller parties, their support is falling away very, very quickly now, isn't it? Uh, praise be. And as for what we saw with um, the, the Andrew Neil interview with Jeremy Corbyn, yes, it was car crash television, and yes, it was horrendous for Corbyn, but I do think it is important that Boris Johnson is interviewed by Andrew Neil in the near future because his team are playing games with the BBC at the moment, saying, oh, we, we can't find a convenient time and this, that and the other. We know what's really going on. Boris Johnson was interviewed by Andrew Neil in the Conservative Leadership Challenge uh, a few months ago. There was him one night, Jeremy Hunt the other night, and Andrew Neil was pulling Boris Johnson up in a way very few other interviewers can, in that he made it clear he wasn't going to allow him to to filibuster and to play for time. Andrew Neil interviewed him forensically. And we're at a situation now, recording this on Saturday evening, where Boris Johnson is due to appear on the Andrew Marr show on Sunday morning. Now, I respect Andrew Marr as a journalist, but as a forensic interviewer, I don't put him in the same league as Andrew Neil, not by a long way. Um, Andrew Neil operates outside the BBC groupthink because he's had a successful career as a businessman and as a newspaper editor. So he doesn't have the same prejudices and worldview as almost everybody else working at the BBC. But I do think it's important, and I want your thoughts on this, please, that Boris Johnson also does the half-hour primetime interview with Andrew Neil and doesn't shy away from that. I think that it would be very foolish of him at this stage to shy away from it. And I have a feeling that he is making a point of it being uh, appearing hard to get um, so that he doesn't end up being interviewed by Tom, Dick and Harry. Mm. Um, and I don't think he would duck the um, final head-to-head. -head. And if he did, I would be uh, seriously underwhelmed um, though I would still find that uh, I have no alternative but to vote for him in the election because uh, I believe in Brexit in the long term. Uh, there is no one else who is likely to deliver it with any likely possibility of getting elected. Um, and I don't think that... Um, Jeremy Corbyn's interview with Andrew Neil was car crash television. I think it was just that uh, the truth will out. Um, and it was interesting to note that almost immediately afterwards, there was an email floating around on the internet, um, which many of us will have seen because it was deliberately leaked by somebody uh, that was being sent out to Momentum type uh, supporters of Corbyn's saying the spin to put on, basically the spin to put on this disaster is uh, and do um, attack anyone who refers to um, the appalling truth about Jeremy Corbyn having been unhideable 
on the Andrew Neil show. It shows how the internet is being abused. Yes, what Greg is referring to there is that um, during the evening when Jeremy Corbyn's interview with Andrew Neil was broadcast, uh, an exchange was leaked on social media that showed somebody coordinating a planned flooding of hashtags and attacks at those who um, criticised Jeremy Corbyn's performance on there because they knew that the interview had taken place a couple of hours before broadcast and Corbyn had done very badly. And what they were trying to do is swamp social media and hashtags, which shows that there is either a WhatsApp group or a messenger group or both that is coordinating all these extraordinary attacks against those who criticise momentum and the Corbyn agenda. That brings us to the end of this week's 20-minute topic. Uh, If you've got any feedback, please drop me a tweet. I'm at Marcus Stead. Join us again next week when the election will be less than a week away. See you then.